You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for September 2011. Today's episode is titled Ministry or Business? How many professing Christians struggle with the question, ministry or business? This question generally arises when a person has a profound encounter with God, which so moves the person that he or she feels compelled to commit his or her life to God. For most, this means full-time Christian ministry, such as missions, the pastorate, evangelism, or Bible teaching. The implication is that any other vocation would not be true ministry because it is not spiritual. But is this true? Christians should not think of work as disconnected from ministry. Work in the physical world is a valid and valued vocational calling. Whatever work you are called to do is your ministry and is a way that you serve and worship the Lord. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Ministry or Business? Welcome to the Executive Forum. I pray that you will have a rich experience listening to the story of ordinary people making an extraordinary difference by living according to a biblical worldview. May you be inspired and envisioned to do the same. In 1968, Jim was a retail consultant specializing in facilities design. One of his clients was a man named Sam, a 47-year-old energetic entrepreneur. Jim and Sam built a relationship of trust by working together on several projects. The men were drawn together not only through business, but also because of their common faith in Christ. Soon Sam realized that he needed to focus on running the business, and therefore needed a trustworthy person to manage the business expansion. Sam considered numerous people, but could find no one better than Jim. Sam made the offer, but Jim was not sure. Jim realized that Sam was a great client, but what would Sam be like as a boss? Would Sam micromanage? Also, Sam's business was nascent, and he was trying to expand in retail malls, an unproven concept in the late 1960s. Would Sam's business idea even work? Furthermore, Jim was considering leaving his five-year-old consulting practice to enter the ministry. So an even more vexing question for Jim was the call of God on his life. Was he called a business or ministry? As Jim pondered his decision, he looked very closely at Sam. Who was Sam? What was Sam called to do? And was Jim called to work for Sam? To answer these questions, Jim had to know Sam and know him well. To make a good decision, you know he has to have a biblical worldview. You're not, if you don't have a biblical worldview, you're not going to make good decisions. You know, if, whenever you make a decision, you want to find people you can be equally yoked with. That way you can pull together effectively and efficiently. You want to be strategic because God is strategic. You know, he's always intentional and purposeful about what he's doing. And you want to execute with excellence. So I think Jim was grabbing hold of all of these things as he was wrestling with this, this question. Here's Sam. 47-year-old entrepreneur that he's done one or two projects with. He's had good success. Uh, it appears that there's a, a bond there developing. Turns out Sam is a professing Christian. So they've had good fellowship over the Lord, had opportunities to pray and talk together. So it's been a good relationship. But now becoming an employee is a different thing. And then when you begin to look at all the facts involved, you know, the new company, the new idea, the new retail mall, and furthermore, you've got this complication of, you know, Jim's reached the point in life where he, he's probably mid-40s, and he's, he's saying, what's it all about? 
You know, that tends to happen when you get about that age. You're asking, what's it all about? And the paradigm that was prominent back then, and still is very prominent today, is, well, if you're going to make your life count, you've got to go and be in the ministry. So those were the, the kind of things he was pondering through all of this. And so as he was praying and seeking the Lord, and as he did that, one of the things that he was convicted of is, you know, I really need to look hard at Sam. He realized that the equal yoking component was really important. And so that's one of the things he wanted to really get clarity on. So he, he began to really spend some time with Sam to get to know Sam. Well, so let's just dig into a little bit of the history with Sam. Sam was born in 1921. He was born in Georgia to a rural family. His dad was in the real estate business. And he did pretty well in the real estate business until October of 1929. Does anybody remember what happened in October 1929? A little hiccup in the economy, and his real estate business went down the tubes, and he wound up having to sell insurance to very poor real farmers. Now, as you can imagine, there really wasn't much income to be made from that, so he was not able to support his family any longer. Family, in the meantime, prior to the, the collapse in 29, they had moved to Atlanta, so they had a, a pretty good-sized home there. So the mom, her name was Lilla, and the dad was Joe, by the way. Lilla began to take in boarders to provide a way to support the family during the Great Depression of the 30s. Well, the boarders, for a dollar a day, they got a bed and they got dinner. So he's learning cooking, he's learning about selling. Those are two key ingredients in his life. And along about uh, the same time, he meets, he meets a... a a lady named Jeanette McNeil. Jeanette McNeil would eventually become his wife some 20 years later. So by the time he was 12 years old, which was 1933, uh, as Sam describes it, he had his three M's in his life. You know, you, you probably have your three M's already. You have, first of all, your mission, what God has called you to do. You have your mate, that is God's, who has God called you to walk your mission with. And you have your master, that is who you're going to live your life for. So he, he had knew the Lord, he had met Jeanette, and he realized that he was going to be in business, and it had to involve selling, and probably was going to involve food in some sort. When he graduated from high school, shortly afterwards, he and his brother Ben, his younger brother Ben, were drafted into the Army, and so they served in the military. Ben actually went to the European theater and was part of the D-Day invasion, and, and Sam was supposed to be shipped to the uh, South Pacific to be part of the Pacific Theater. But something strange happened. Sam found out if he took his shirt off and stayed in the sun any length of time, that uh, he, would, he would faint, that he was having some kind of reaction to the sunlight. And so it, he, he got with the doctors and they talked about it. The doctors had no clue what was going on and had no idea how to treat it. So they eventually released Sam from the Army. He never really had to serve overseas. And most of his service in the Army was just in in the supply chain of the military. So we got back to Atlanta, and Ben got returned from war, and they got together and said, you know, we want to go in business together. See, Sam never liked to do anything by himself. He liked to work with people. People were a key part of his life. So he and Ben decided to go into business together. So first they thought about a grocery store. That sounded like a good idea. You know, people need groceries. And then they thought about a restaurant. Of course, the problem there is you've got to prepare the food. You know, so they wrestled with that. There was a, a fairly affluent lady in Atlanta who owned some restaurants. 
And uh, they had a friend who knew this lady, and they were introduced to her. And she said, well, you guys are interested in, you know, learning about the restaurant business. I'll hire you, and I will train you. And if you do well, I'll give you each your own restaurant, and you can manage that yourself. They thought, hey, this is a pretty good deal. So they went to work for this lady, and they learned the restaurant business. And about a year or so later, they're, they're ready to, you know, they want to go launch their own businesses underneath, of course, her name and her money. And she said, you know, I think you guys ought to do a restaurant together. And that really irritated them. They got really ticked off. They said, lady, you promised us each our own restaurant. She said, well, I just think it would be better if you worked together. So they decided to quit and work together. So that was it's kind of one of the ironies of the story. So they quit, and then they decided they're going to do a restaurant together. So here they are now, these, these two young men, mid-20s, that know a little bit about the restaurant business, have a lot of uh, energy, but they don't have any capital. And they know we need some capital, we, we need a plan. Okay, and so what do we do here? So what they did is they sold their cars, raised all the cash they could, they came up with $4,000. Then they went to a bank, and they, they, they were able to get a bank to loan them $6,600. They had $10,600 to go out and to buy some land and build a restaurant on it and put equipment in it, stock it with food, and start business. That's what they had. Now, hopefully you can see that was not a lot of money even back then to do that. So they decided, okay, we're going to, well, first we've got to find a place. So they found a place, a 50 by 150 foot lot that they could buy for $2,500. Well, that's, that's, that's 25% of their capital right there going on that land. And they haven't put anything on it. Well, next thing they got to do is they got to build this thing. Well, in 1945, late 45, early 46, when they were building, and you wanted to get building materials, uh, not likely going to happen. Because if you weren't an established contractor, you didn't have any clout with any supply houses, and things were in short supply because everything had been going to the war effort. Remember, the war ended in, in September of 45. So now we're in transition going back to a peacetime economy. So the building trade really hadn't geared up. So they were not able to buy materials. So they decided to go out and, and scrounge. And they would go to dilapidated buildings, and they would pull nails out and find, find flooring and lumber, whatever they could find. They just scra you know, scrounged together the materials they needed. Then they actually did a lot of the manual labor, digging the piers and all that. And they found a carpenter they could hire pretty cheaply to help, kind of help them out because they didn't know what they were doing. But anyway, after about six or eight months of hard work, they opened the restaurant in May of 1946. First day sales were $58.20. Rip-roaring amount. But you know, it was theirs. It was their restaurant, and they were, they, were, they were there to run it, and they were going to be open six days a week, 24-7. They were each going to take 12-hour shifts. So that's how, how they got started in the restaurant business. They worked together for about three years. Then in July of 1949, Ben was an avid private pilot. This is what I love about Ben. You know, he was, he was looking for every opportunity to fly. Of course, pilots, they don't have to have an opportunity, just inexcusable work. One afternoon, he and his buddies, one of his other brothers, see, that, see Sam had Ben and Horace were his brothers. So Ben and Horace decided they want to go fly to Tennessee. So they go out and rent a 170. That's a Cessna product, a tail dragger, and uh, we, we don't have any of those around today. But they rented this airplane, and they took off, and they knew they were not IFR trained. 
IFR's instrument flight rules, they were not prepared for the weather. So as they, the weather came in faster than flight service had predicted, so they landed uh, to wait out the weather. Then they thought they had a break, so they, they took off again to try to fly on to Chattanooga. And on the way, the weather gets worse. Eight o'clock in the evening, it's dark. Uh, somebody noticed the airplane and told the local sheriff, I think this plane's in trouble. They're, they seem lost. They don't know where they're going. And so the sheriff, believe it or not, they got together a whole group of people to uh, set up a makeshift runway with car lights. And the pilot saw it. He saw it. sees this makeshift runway with car lights lighting up the runway. And so here he comes in for landing. He's thinking, oh, that's my salvation. I'm lost. I don't know where to go. And of course, back in 1949, we didn't have much in the way of, of aircraft facilities, runways that were lighted. Uh, a lot of navigation equipment wasn't there. You were, there was a lot of dead reckoning going on, a lot of uh, hope and prayer. So they were, they were anyway, they got this temporary runway that's set up you know, by, the, by the local people that are shining their car lights on the, on the ground. So they're coming in for a landing. And as they come in, the wingtip clips an antenna on one of the police vehicles. Now, you remember the police vehicles used to have really tall antennas? Remember that? Real tall antennas? So it clips it. When it did, whoever was flying, and we don't know really who was flying. It could have been Ben. It could have been Horace or one of the other. There were two other men on the plane. Whoever was flying throttled up to, to go around, but when he did, the engine stalled. It sputtered, and they came down flat like a pancake killed everybody in the airplane. And uh, so Ben is all of a sudden gone. So Sam now is running the restaurant by himself. Now, Sam never had anticipated this. And he, you know, this was just a shocker for him. He was just stunned by this experience. This was a traumatic event in Sam's life. It's the kind of event that could absolutely debilitate someone, just like the Great Depression debilitated Sam's dad. That had the potential of debilitating Sam. But Sam, with his new wife, Jeanette, they'd only been married about a year, they, they came together, they sought the Lord, they were strengthened in the Lord, and they continued with the restaurant. A year later, they buy out the interest of, of Ben's widow, so they fully own the restaurant. And then a year after that, 1951, they open up a second restaurant. Well, the 1950s were a pretty good time because that was a time where where Jeanette and Sam were building their family, and they were enjoying their two restaurants. Things were going fine. And then in 1961, February of 1961, Sam gets a call one night. And that call was from the local fire department. One of his restaurants was on fire. By the time he got there, and he lived about 20 miles away, the restaurant was demolished. It was gone. It was over. So now he's looking at this total, total loss here, and he has $25,000 of insurance, which even back then is not going to come close. He needs about four or five times that to rebuild. So he's sitting there looking at this, this restaurant loss, and he's just he's devastated. Well, he goes from bad to worse. About two or three days later, he tells his wife, Jeanette, you know, I passed blood. Not a good sign. So she says, you got to go see a doctor. She goes to a doctor, and this is a time when medical science wasn't that well developed relative to colon issues. So he wound up in colon surgery to take out these polyps. And in the process of recovering, they gave him codeine, and unbeknownst to him, he's allergic to codeine. So the recovery was very complicated. Then a few months later, the polyps come back. 
And so now the surgeon says, well, they came back in the same place, so what we need to do is just go cut out that portion of the colon. So you can see for about a year, he's out of service, just dealing with health issues, and he's got the, the ruins of that restaurant sitting there and no money to rebuild it. Now, does this sound like a pretty tough situation? This is, this is, this is what Sam had to deal with. And this very easily could have taken him to the same place that his father went to, which was debilitated. But it didn't. Sam recovered after about a year, and he knew, he knew that he was supposed to do something with that restaurant. So he rebuilt the restaurant. And he, this is where he met Jim, because Jim designed the restaurant for him. And so that's where they began to work together. Now, Sam decided, I'm going to do a new kind of concept here. I'm going to do self-serve fast food. Now, you think, well, gee, what's so new about that? Well, it was new in 1961. That was a new idea. Nobody had done something like that. And so when Sam opened the doors, what he discovered was it was not well received. The, the patrons were not used to that kind of, 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 of product. So he got to talking to one of his friends, and his friend says, Sam, you know, you could patiently wait, and, you know, maybe people come around to it, or you could go back to what you're doing at your other restaurant. That's your choices. And Sam says, you know, I really don't want to do either one of those. And the guy says, well, look, there's a new franchise called Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I think what I want to do is I'd like to lease your restaurant and put a Kentucky Fried Chicken in there. And if you want, you can be a partner. And Sam says, well, you know, tell me about how you'd operate. He said, well, we'd operate seven days a week, 24-7. He said, well, I just can't do that. He said, well, why? He said, because I, my personal conviction is I'm not going to do business on Sunday. That's a day of rest and refreshment. He says, well, okay. But Sam leased the restaurant to him, and so now the Kentucky Fried Chicken franchise in Atlanta came in and just did great. It exploded. Well, Sam took note of that. He watched that, and he said, that's very interesting. Now, it turns out that prior to this event, in the late 50s, another thing happened relative to aviation and Sam. And this was the airlines had decided that they wanted to serve food on airplanes. And they decided chicken would be a good, good, uh, good product. So they started trying to buy chicken breasts from chicken producers. The problem is, if you've ever seen the tray on an airplane, the tray that you put the chicken in is very small. So they had a lot of breasts, chicken breasts, that would not fit in that tray. So these producers are, have got contracts with the airlines, like Delta, for example, to sell them this chicken, but it's got to be small. So they got all of this these bigger chicken breasts that don't fit in the tray. So what do you do with that? Well, Sam had in the late 50s had actually started experimenting with those chicken breasts and trying to figure out what could you do with that. So he figured out how to cook them. He said, you know, I can cook this thing in a pressure cooker in about four minutes. And it cooks very evenly, very uniform. It's very nice. And then he starts thinking about what can I do with it? Then he came up with this idea, wait a minute, what if I put it in a bun, like a hamburger? You see, his first restaurant was all about hamburgers, so he knew about buns. So he thought, maybe I can put that chicken breast in a bun, and maybe I can figure out some ways to season it, put some pickles on it or something, and then I'll have a, I'll have a chicken sandwich. And so he developed this chicken sandwich in the late 50s, and he began to, to give it away at his restaurants. You know, this is one of his strategies for, for developing business, is he gave away free food. And he was looking for feedback for the customer, as well as, obviously, he was producing a lot of goodwill because everybody likes free food, right? So he's developed this chicken sandwich, 
And then I went to a restaurant trade show, and they display the chicken sandwich at the restaurant trade show. The people there just loved it. In fact, there were a whole bunch of restaurants that wanted that chicken sandwich. So fine, he licensed these restaurants to, to, to make his chicken sandwich. Well, the next thing he finds out is they're not following his specifications. You see, Sam was a stickler for quality. And he knew if you're going to give your quality chicken sandwich, you've got to make it fresh. You can't make it in the morning and serve it in the afternoon. That doesn't work. Well, he's got a bunch of these licensees that are doing that. They're making it in the morning and then serving the, the food throughout the day. He said, no, that isn't going to work. So he cancels all of these licensees. He cuts everybody off. Nobody's going to make my chicken sandwich except me. So he's sitting there, you know, kind of, he's kind of got burned again, kind of frustrated with that, and pondering, what do I do with this? I got this chicken sandwich. I think it's pretty good. And, it, you know, he, as he thought about it, and he looked at KFC and said, boy, look at what they're doing, man. They're really going great guns. He says, they're not doing what I'm doing. They're, they're selling chicken. I've got a chicken sandwich. So he began to ponder, how do I brand this thing? And so he goes to his lawyer and starts talking to his lawyer. And what he's looking for is a trademark. How do I trademark this thing? And the lawyer says, you can't trademark chicken sandwich. <laughs> You've got to have something unique. You know, well, chicken filet sandwich, that's not unique enough. So they have this conversation going back and forth. And finally, Sam goes back and he's pondering, what do I do? I've got to come up with a brand. And so as he thinks about this, he just experiments with different things. And finally, do you know what name he came up with? He came up with Chick-fil-A. And he liked that. He says, you know, it's got a nice sound to it, and the A on the end speaks of quality, because grade A is quality, and that's what I'm about, is quality. And so by now you know who Sam was. Sam was Samuel Truett Kathy. Samuel was the name of a pastor that his parents had a great affection for, and Truett was the last name of George W. Truett, who was a pastor at First Baptist Church for 47 years, from 1897 to 1944. So he was named after two very godly men, and he was walking in the legacy of his name. He was truly a godly man. So he developed his franchise, his, his brand, and now he's looking for, okay, what do I do with this? And so he, decides, he decided not to go to his first restaurant, which was called the Dwarf Grill, and change that. That had been going great for a long time. Leave that alone. He decides, I'm going to start opening up a new, a new line of, of stores that's going to focus on the chicken sandwich. And so the first store that opened in 1967, which Jim helped design, was in the Greenbrier Mall in, in Atlanta there. Now, the reason he liked the mall was, was because of what happened with the Dwarf Grill. The Dwarf Grill was built right down the street from the Ford Motor Plant in Atlanta. So the plant have all these people going to work every day, and so they come by the Dwarf Grill to, to have breakfast, they come over there for lunch, and they'll stop in for dinner. So he had built-in clientele from the Ford Motor Plant. So he said, I need a built-in clientele. And so that's why the malls were attractive to him. Furthermore, he could do a unit in a mall a lot cheaper than a freestanding building. So that's how he started building in the malls. In fact, he exclusively built in malls for about 20 years. And back to Jim. Jim was a real interesting guy. Jim and, and Truett came together like, brother, like two brothers did. And Jim, as he helped Truett develop these stores, 
and Truett invites him to come on board with him, what Jim looked at deep inside of him was, what is business and what is ministry? And what has God called me to do? You know, many times people don't even ask the question, what has God called me to do? But he asked that question. As he prayerfully considered this, as he got to know Sam and Truett, well, I've got to call him Truett now that you know who he is, but as he got to know Truett and what Truett was all about, he really realized that this is a man that I can walk with. And as he prayed about this, he became convicted that there was a call of God on his life to partner with Truett. And so Jim and Truett came together and formed a partnership. And Jim realized the choice is not business or ministry. That's what most people think it is. That's not the choice. He said, I choose both because my business is my ministry because that is what God has called me to. So he embraced a holistic worldview in coming to the decision that he came to to join Truett Cathy. Jim Collins, by the way, he was called Jimmy Collins by many. Uh, it's not the Jim Collins of, good, of uh, good to Great. It's a different one, Jimmy Collins. Jimmy Collins is a very godly man. And he, he walked with God at a level that most of us probably would be envious of. And he and Truett walked out the reality of building Chick-fil-A based on a commitment to biblical values and principles. They had several, several challenges along the way. You know, it's not been easy. It's not easy for anybody. In 1972, they had a challenge. You remember what happened in 1972? We have the oil embargo. Okay? All of a sudden, you know, oil goes through the roof. Well, suddenly, restaurants that cost $75,000 to build cost $100,000 to build. They committed to building 14 new stores in 1974. And they, did, they didn't have the cash to build them for $100,000. They had the cash to build them for $75,000. So they had to go out, and they were forced by commitment and inflationary circumstances to borrow money, which normally they wouldn't do. You see, the way they capitalized their business was they took their profits and used that to expand the business. But this time they had to, to go into debt, which really they did not like at all. So they worked hard to get that debt paid off. Then the next crisis came in 1982. 1982, for the first time in the history of the company, the company start, sales start going down. They never had that. And they had done all their planning based on sales going up. So suddenly, they have a cash flow problem. So Truett begins to question himself. He begins to soul search. He begins to ask the Lord, what have I done wrong? Where have I missed you? What have I, what have I failed to see? He really begins to get very, very concerned. And many of us have asked these same questions. You know, what's going on? You ask the questions and you hear nothing. And that went on for months. He heard nothing. Finally, in October, he calls for a retreat. All the management team goes off-site for a retreat, and we're here to talk about this cash flow problem. What are we going to do? We can't continue this way. We're going to go broke. Well, in the midst of this, Truett's son, Dan, his oldest son, Dan, asks some very profound questions. He said, uh, why are we here? That is, why are we on this earth? And why are we in business? And... You know, what are we supposed to do? And Truett's first reaction to that was, well, those are nice questions, but we really need to talk about cash flow. And then he stopped himself. He said, wait a minute. We need to wrestle with those questions. So they spent a whole day wrestling with the question of why, why are we in business? What is the point of it? 
And from that, that planning session came forth the corporate purpose of Chick-fil-A that, even, that, is, that is the purpose today. The purpose has got two, two aspects to it. It's built around the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbors yourself. So their first aspect of who they are is about glorifying God and everything they, they steward. They recognize that they're stewards. They're not owners. They're stewards. And secondly, is to be a positive influence on everybody that they come in contact with. So that is a driving agenda for that company. The younger son, Bubba, said it this way. He said, Chick-fil-A, the agenda of Chick-fil-A is about people. Restaurants are just the vehicle by which we bless people. So you see, the biblical thinking in them was deep. By the way, uh, they never solved the cash flow problem. The Holy Spirit took care of it. Because shortly after they had that retreat and they had that breakthrough with understanding why they were there, their sales turned around. I have no idea why. No clue why. They just did. All of a sudden they're up and the cash flow problem goes away. It's amazing how when we turn to the Lord, things like that go away. Because the reality is cash flow, a cash flow problem, is really a symptom. It's not a root issue. And when you begin to solve the root issues, the symptoms go away. So this is how they built the company. Com complete focus on seeking the will of God. A focus on doing the will of God. A focus on helping people find what they're called to do. A focus on helping people grow up and mature in Christ. A focus on helping deliver a great value proposition to their customers. So that's the Chick-fil-A that you know today. And that's something of the story of how it got there. These are lessons from S. Truett Cathy. First of all is his, his life verse. You know, if you don't have a life verse, you ought to have a life verse. He has a life verse. This life verse came to him from grade school. When, uh, and when he was in grade school, uh, they studied scripture back in the 1930s. I know we don't do that today, but they did back then. And one day his uh, teacher asked everybody to come up with a, their favorite verse, and uh, she chose Truett's verse and put the verse up on, on the board. It was up on the board all week along with Truett's name next to it. And so that became his life verse. It's Proverbs 22.1. A good name is more desirable than great riches, and to be esteemed is better than silver or gold. And he's practiced that, I think, to the best of his ability all of his life. Then in his second book, which was released just a year or so ago, he's got his 11 do's and don'ts of success. Number one, establish a nest egg. Live simply. Two, find what makes you happy. Now, what he's talking about here is find the passion. Find the thing that God created you to do. Third, reward yourself later. In other words, living simply means that you don't, you're not extravagant. You save up, and later on you can have your reward. Learn from mature people. You see, one of his practices was to always be around people that he could learn from. And he understood the reality that, you know, you will be like the people that you hang around with. That's a proverb. And so he practiced that, and he taught that diligently. Don't try to please everyone. He recognized that when you're walking out biblical principles, there are some people that are not going to want it. They will not be happy with that, and you've got to be okay with that. Set priorities in proper order. You know, many people talk about, well, well is, it, is it God and then family and business? What's the order there? Truist's philosophy is they all come together. 
as I worship God, I'm going to be taking care of my family, and I'm going to be taking care of my family, my, my business. All of that flows together. Because I can't be good in one and think that I can ignore the others. Glorifying God is being good in business. Glorifying God is being excellent in family. Grow your business cautiously. That is, we, we're, into, we're in a day and age where the fastest growing is rewarded. You know, we have an award here in Dallas for the fastest growing company. Uh, he, he never would buy into that, and I totally agree. I think fastest growing anything is probably a little bit dangerous. You need to be cautious there. You want to build based on the provision God gives you. You see, he always used debt very conservatively, tried to grow out of the profits of the, of the company, always pouring the profits back in to build the company, and only a couple times was he caught where he had to borrow money, and when he did it, he was diligent about getting it paid back very quickly. Use franchising cautiously. You know, he does franchise now. I don't know how really he feels about that because he doesn't talk a lot about his franchising. The, 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 most of the stores are run by operators who are effectively partners with him. He's got a model very similar to J.C. Penney. That's how Penny built his business, is they would go into a town and find a partner, and then they would, they would work together with that partner to build a store. So franchising, he recognizes, has got a lot of, lot of problems with it, so be careful there. Be prepared for disappointments. You think he had some disappointments? Some tough times? You've got to be prepared for that. His dad was not prepared for that. He saw his, those disappointments cripple his dad, and he determined that by the grace of God, they would not cripple him. Be kind to people. You know, that's, that's so easy to do. Just being kind to people buys you so much goodwill. He's always practiced that. He reminds me of Herb Kelleher. Uh, Herb Kelleher is probably one of the best that I know of at just being able to relate to people. And he apparently learned how to do that from the knee of his mother, who taught him the golden rule faithfully. And he, they've taken that, that one principle and turned a, an, an airline into a profitable business in an industry that's largely not profitable. And that's the power of biblical principles. They will bring fruit if we will practice them. And finally, invite God into every decision. You know, we think it's up to us. No, it isn't. Our job is to seek the Lord. He is the one that will guide and direct us. He is the one that will show us what he wants done. And if we do it his way and according to his will, then we will have favor in whatever we do. So this is, this is S. Truett Cathy a man of God, perhaps a man that's built a company as well as anyone in the 20th century. As I've studied great men of the 20th century, S. Truett Cathy, uh, Marion Wade, and probably J.C. Penney are three of the most outstanding men who built based on biblical principles that I know of, and he's certainly in that category of great, great men. So may you have the grace to build like Truett Cathy, and may you do it in a way that truly honors the Lord. Well, Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the grace that we have through Christ. Thank you for the truth of your word and how relevant it is to help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and to build organizations that do reflect you and do honor you. So, Father, give us the grace to learn the lessons of S. Truett Cathy and give us the courage and strength to obey and practice these lessons faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen.